Welcome to Faith Community. We're glad you're here. If you're visiting, we have no idea how you got here. But anyway, you're saying, I don't know why I got here. But we're glad you're here anyway. This is the weekly family get-together for Faith Community. And I want to say in a day, uh, with a day in advance, happy Columbus Day tomorrow to all of you Italians, okay? And happy Thanksgiving to our wonderful Canadian neighbors tomorrow as well. Woo-woo! Thank you. Thank you. I'll continue when the applause subsides. Good. Presently, we are in a series <clears throat> on the themes of that riveting and larger-than-life book of Revelation. <clears throat> and the series is entitled, I'm just going to give Dan this to handle, The Book of Revelation, The Back of the Book. We are learning a lot of things about themes that carry throughout the book of Revelation. And before every message in this series, I've treated my listeners with two great gifts. The first is a kind of a quick lightning round of battery charging questions just to get you into a, a, a mental frame so you're ready to go with this and you've got some things uh, to kind of set the stage. And I'm going to ask that as I ask the question that you please not answer it audibly. And here they are, number one. When you look at the world and what's happening in it today, does evil or good seem to be the more powerful voice or the more powerful force? Think about that. Just think about that. Just kind of plant something in there that will help you to think on what we're saying today. Second question is, why does God sometimes disguise his power in weakness? Todd and I both have been uh, mentioning this in recent messages over the past month. And uh, the only clue that I'm going to give you there, and I'm going to ask the question again so you get it, and then I'm going to give you a clue. Why does God sometimes disguise his power in weakness? And the clue is, think of the crucifixion. Question number three, how can the church work for the undoing of evil forces in the world? Do we have a part? And is it contingent on us to, be even, to even be involved? Question number four, should we only pray, or should we only work, or should we work and pray with regards to the evil of the world today? And the fifth question, even when evil seems to have the upper hand, do you know what the reality is? What is the reality? And then I have one bonus question, which is an up-to-date question. And it's for all of us in the room to seriously consider, and it's this. Here's my question. Were Christians martyred for their faith last week in the state of Oregon? And my second treat for you this morning is your homework assignment for the week. I'm just curious, has anybody done their homework? Has anybody done the reading that I've recommended in the last month or so in these series? No? Okay. Well, I'm going to keep giving it. Here's the homework assignment for this week. It's to read Revelation chapter 19. It'll bring back an awful lot of stuff that you hear this morning, and it'll probably make it clearer for you as you read in the quiet of your own home or wherever you choose to read. It's only 21 verses, and that's a very quick read, but I ask you to read it and take it in. What? 19. 19. And uh, so that leads us into the fifth in our series, simply entitled, 
the battle, no contest. No contest. Ray Bach uh, wrote uh, a story, told a story, a true story, which happened during World War II. And he, he said this he, in his writing. He said, I knew an old Glasgow professor named MacDonald. What else would a Glasgow professor be named? Who, along with a Scottish chaplain, had bailed out of an airplane behind German lines, and they were put in a prison camp. A high wire fence separated the Americans from the British, and the Germans uh, made it next to impossible for the two sides to communicate. MacDonald was put in the American barracks, and the chaplain was housed with the Brits. And so every day, the two men would meet at the fence and exchange a greeting. Unknown to the guards, the Americans had a little homemade radio, and they were able to get news from the outside. Something more precious, by the way, than food in a prison camp. Every day, MacDonald would take a headline or two to the fence, and he would share it with the chaplain, and they would be speaking in the ancient Gaelic language, indecipherable totally to the Germans. And one day, news came over the little radio that the German high command had surrendered, and the war was over. MacDonald took the news to his friend, and then he stood at the fence, and he watched him disappear into the British barracks. But a few moments later, a roar of celebration came from the barracks, and life in that camp, in a moment, in an instant, was transformed. Men walked around singing and shouting and waving at the guards, even laughing at the guard dogs. And when the German guards finally heard the news three nights later, they fled into the dark, leaving the gates unlocked. The next morning, the Brits and the Americans walked out together as free men. Yet they had been truly set free three days earlier by the news that the war was over. I have a personal story that I've never told publicly, and um, excuse me if I bumble this a little bit, but my Uncle Robert, after whom I'm named, was just 22 when he was involved, if you're a student of history, in what was called the Dieppe Raid of August 19, 1942, that took place in a little town on the northern coast of France. More than 60% of the Allied soldiers who made it to shore, and that was over 3,000 of them, were either killed, wounded, or captured by the Germans. Over 900 Canadian troops died in that one-day battle. Actually, it was about a six-hour battle. And the Canadian prisoners were marched all through France and into German POW camps, and my uncle was among them. And there he stayed until liberated by Allied forces near the end of the war in April of 1945, just about 33 months I'm privileged as one member of the family who's interested in this. Uh, I'm, I'm, and my father was, uh, was uh, almost uh, six years overseas in the Second World War as well. I'm interested in this. I have photos from the prison camp. I have letters that were sent to him, copies of the same. I have letters that he wrote out of the camp. I have all of those stuff that was going on at home, letters from the Red Cross and so on. Total contact, contact was totally lost at one point and never regained. So they thought he had died or, you know, he had been, he just didn't make it. 
um, no contact at all for a long, long time. But then after the war was over and they were moving the troops around, starting to reassemble them to come back home, he was reunited with his big brother, <laughs> my dad. And I can just imagine what kind of celebration that was because neither one knew where the other one was and neither one knew if either was alive. They were reunited in London. And um, when the war ended, that was, that was not only good news for them, uh, but it was good news. My father went overseas in 1940, uh, joined the Canadian Army in 1939. They were deployed. Uh, the first uh, battalions were deployed in 1939 in the summer when the war started, and then he went over in 1940. My brother, or my only, other sibling, my only sibling, was born two months after he left, and my dad came home in uh, September of 45. So my brother was uh, just past five. My father had never seen him, and they... That was quite a, quite a story in and of itself. Over the years, my uncle had, had talked a little. You could pry a few things out of him, but most of the stuff regarding the camp, he didn't. In his last few years, he would talk a little bit more about it, and he'd look at some of the pictures, but uh, we didn't get a lot of information. We know he was a totally changed man when he came out of there. And then I had the honor four and a half years ago of uh, conducting his funeral. He lived to a ripe age of 92 and uh, what he had gone through in that prison camp, i got to tell you, was, uh, you know, it's unspeakable. You know, uh, I carry my Bible when I come to church just because uh, sometimes I think I might need to look into it. But this is one of the greatest treasures. I, I, this is the greatest treasure that I have. And you probably have your Bible with you this morning, or you have your, your electronic device with a Bible on it, whatever, so... You know, the great thing about having a Bible is that we know, not only know some of the struggles the world is going to face, and there are going to be some struggles. And by the way, what's going on on the globe today, and, and I, don't, I don't mean to minimize this, but it's really a Sunday school picnic compared to what it's going to be like. We haven't seen. People say, you think we're in the, uh, you think we're in the tribulation? Could these be the, the early days of the tribulation no, because we're still here. But the one thing about owning a Bible is you know some of the struggles the world will face, but we have been told the outcome of the final battle. We know that we're on the winning side and that good will triumph over evil. We know that truth will win out over the lie. We know that love will conquer hate, and Jesus Christ will reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. See, there's cheering in our camp even though the guards and the dogs may still be seen, for we know that they will soon be gone, and the gates to the prison will be completely opened. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing to his fiancée from a German prison, observed, and I quote, he said, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not, my dear, a bad picture of the advent, end of quote, or the coming of Christ. We cannot open the door ourselves, and we cannot open it from the inside, but there will be one who will come and will open the door of freedom for us. 
And that will be the greatest freedom that we have ever, ever, ever known. Well, in the 19th chapter of Revelation, we're told of the second coming of Jesus Christ to earth. Far from being something that we should dread, it is one of the greatest events that the world will experience and which Christians should anticipate with great eagerness. Matter of fact, the Bible calls it the blessed hope. When it says in Titus 2, and by the way, if you're looking for Scripture and you're looking for lots of Bible referencing and you're looking for truth unfurled, i got to tell you, get all the tapes that you can of this, of this series and listen intently when you're here because you're going to get all the Scripture that you can handle and probably more because we go back to the Word of God whenever we want verification, don't we? And whenever we want to really know what's going on, whenever we want to find the pathway to life, we go back to the Word of God. And in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, 12, and 13, the writer Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldliness or worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for, say it with me, the blessed hope. Say it with me, the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So what is our blessed hope as believers? the great appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to tell you that's an important thing, and it's also an exciting thing, and it's one which should uh, capture our, our thoughts, our imagination. And, and the second coming to earth is, a uh, Christian believer, it is our great hope. Just let me explain so that you're not confused. The first coming of Jesus to this earth was in Bethlehem. How many know what happened there? Okay, three people do. Could one of you tell me? Or all three, it doesn't matter. He was born. He came as a man. He took on the form of mankind. He became the God-man. He, he, it's this God in the flesh, in human flesh. That was his first visit to, uh, to earth as we know it. Now, the next coming, and I'm not going to put this on the screen. I'm going to, you're going to put it in your notes. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. There is no better description anywhere in Scripture than 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, because that's the next major biblical event in history for which we wait. It is known as, some people call it, the rapture of the church. Rapture is not a biblical word. Don't go to your concordance. You won't find it. But it's the bringing up or the carrying up or the taking away when Christ comes. You say, well, isn't that the second coming? Yes, he's coming, but he's coming in the air. All right, he's not going to land on planet Earth. He's not going to put feet down on the Earth. He's coming in the air, and those who know him and love him are going to do what? Are going to meet him in the air. And so, the Bible says, shall we ever be with the Lord? That shouldn't excite you. I don't expect you to get all excited over that. So what I'm calling today is really the second coming of Christ, if you will, to the earth. And that's what John's writing about here in the Revelation. Okay, that's not the rapture of the church. That's already taken place. So this is 
And, and when he comes for the believers, keep four, I like the four R's, return, resurrection, rapture, and reward. We have four R's to look forward to, and I am looking forward to all of them. Return, resurrection, rapture, and reward. Now, finally, he will come, and when he comes in this next time, in this next event, he comes as a great warrior. He comes to put an end to the kingdom of evil. Won't that be great? He comes to put an end uh, to the fallen world as we know it, the world that is controlled and run by sin. The return of Christ is not bad news. It, it's going to be for some people. It is the best news that a world racked by evil has ever been told. Now, let's look at what the Bible says about the end of the world. Um, I'd rather look to what the Bible says than to what Hollywood says. They've got it a little out of sequence. Let's look at what the Bible says about the final battle. How many are interested in this, to see that? Uh, let's look at what the Bible says about the real second coming. Call it the third coming, if you want, of Christ. There are three things that I think stand out in my mind. The first that we need to know about the second coming is Christ will come with great power. What an amazing picture John is painting for us here in Revelation and if you read Revelation 19, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about, and you'll be able to fill in a lot of the blanks that I'm just going to jump from one point to another. But all the armies of the world are gathered to... You know, I preached messages like this 35, 40 years ago. And I would just go zooming right through those kind of statements, like all the armies of the world will be assembled. I don't say that glibly anymore. Are you paying attention? Are you watching what's happening in this world today? Are you noticing? All of the great armies of the world will be assembled. Wow. And the idea is they're going to fight Christ and they're going to fight his army. So I always like to say all the armies are going to fight his army. <laughs> It's a horrifying scene, really, from the perspective of Earth, as we are here, planted on the globe, and kind of looking skyward, hoping for it all to, to consummate and, and be done. Uh, it, it, it's kind of horrific, really. All the forces of evil, we can't even imagine what that means in our minds, gather in one place to make war against God and his kingdom. And again, John gives us the symbolic imagery Back in Revelation 16, starting at verse 13, we read these four verses. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. That's the unholy trinity. Remember I mentioned that earlier. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Verse 15, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Verse 16, then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called, how many have heard this word before? 
Armageddon. Hollywood didn't, uh, they didn't create this world, this word, okay? Then they gather the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So now, before us, right now, we have the Middle East. How many know there's stuff happening in the Middle East? Mm. Chaos. It's a tinderbox. Personally, I don't believe the Third World War is about to start, and personally, I don't believe when it does start, it will start in the Middle East. But we all have our own political ideas of where it'll start. Keep your eye on the South China Sea. Things are really escalating there. So uh, how many of you know there's bombing going on in Syria right now? How many don't know that? I'm not going to say how many don't care, because you ought to care. You ought to know. There's no excuse for Christians not to know what's going on in the world and be ready. So who's bombing who in Syria? Well, Syrian President Assad is facing an armed uprising in his own country. He's been on the run for a number of years now. But he's trying to crush it. He's trying to put it down with the help from his friends. Who's who's his friends? Iran, Russia, and Hezbollah from Lebanon. On the other side, the U.S., Turkey, and the Gulf Arabs, most of the Western world, want Assad to go. And so they've now been training many of the rebels trying to unseat him. But the trouble is, one of the main insurgent groups is the so-called Islamic State. How many have heard of that? You may have heard it called ISIS. You may have heard it called ISIL. And everyone hates ISIS, including the other rebels. So now everyone's all on the same side, all against ISIS, right? Uh, Not quite. Russia says it's bombing ISIS, but it's also bombing some of the other rebel groups fighting Assad. If you've read a paper this week, you know that. Some of those groups are being funded by some of the Gulf countries, such as Saudi Arabia and Qatar, or Qatar, which rivals Iran. Meanwhile, the Turks have said they want Assad gone, but they're not bombing him yet. Instead, they're bombing ISIS and also bombing the Kurds a whole lot more than they're bombing ISIS. The Kurds are enemies of Assad, enemies of ISIS, and enemies of Turkey. But those same Kurds are backed by the U.S., that's us, who are allies with their enemies, Turkey. U.S. is is allied with Turkey. So, to sum it up, because I know you're right with me, friends are fighting each other, and by the way, these are all America's friends, apparently, and they're all fighting each other but they're also fighting their arch enemy now, which is a much bigger enemy, and that's ISIS. And that now has become a bigger enemy than their other enemy, who is Syria's President Assad. You got it? Good. And so, John tells us in the Revelation that all the armies of the world are going to unite under one banner, for one cause. And what's the cause? To fight against God, the real God of heaven, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your God, my God, our God, the one true and living God. And as we read these accounts in Scripture, expecting to find a description of a horrific battle, here's what we're hard-pressed to do. We're 
were unbelievably hard-pressed to find that battle anywhere in Scripture. You know what I did this week? I went back through it again. I thought, have I missed this all these years? And I keep looking for this horrific battle, the Battle of Armageddon. There, there is no battle. There is no description of a battle. I'll tell you why, because there's no battle. It isn't even a contest. In fact, the victory is announced, listen to this, before the armies of evil arrive. Yeah, I'm going to prove it to you. Hold on, hold on. Before the armies, the enemy armies even arrive, victory is already secured and announced. And, throwing in this bonus... The birds of the air are called to come together for a great feast because they will satiate or, or, or gorge themselves on the flesh of kings and mighty men. Yummy! <laughs> Listen again to how the Bible describes that final confrontation between the armies of the Antichrist, all the armies of evil of the world, and the army of God. Our text chapter, Revelation 19, starting at verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. That's Jesus. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf. And with this signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And so the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Verse 21. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And I love the ending. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Hey, folks, get ready. The buzzards are coming. Now, I'm going to say it again. I don't want you to laugh because this is serious. Get ready. The buzzards are coming. The word is out. Victory has been declared. It's an it's a all-over fight before it started. And you read that account and you let that sink in and you say to yourself, there's no real battle. The Lord simply picks up the Antichrist, picks up the false prophet, drops them into the lake of fire. The rest are destroyed by the sword coming out of Christ's mouth. And what is the sword? It's simply the word. Isn't it that? Isn't that the sword of the Lord? Isn't that the sword of the Spirit, the word of God? Yeah. And they're gone. End of battle. End of story. End of battle. End of story. End of battle. End of story. Wow. Now, here's the mystery of God. And I don't, I don't have an explanation for this entirely. The evil empire has been permitted to make it appear, and even so today, that they are more powerful than the kingdom of God. God has permitted for, for things to look as though good has been completely overpowered. Do you ever feel that? Only, listen, only to have it win, the eventual winner, 
in the end. We hear the shout of triumph in Revelation 11, and I believe that comes before Revelation 19. And in Revelation 11:15, we read, "The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, <laughs> loud voices in heaven, whoo, which said, "The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah, and He will reign, I should sing it for you, really, forever and ever. I feel like a hallelujah chorus coming on. Say, where did those words come from when Handel wrote that great oratorio of the Messiah? Right here. Right here. Revelation eleven fifteen. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Christ. And he, any of you that have ever, have ever sung that or ever heard it, shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. How many forevers? Huh. I think at one point, eight times, right? Long ago, the psalmist asked the question. I think that was before Revelation chapter 19. And see what the psalmist said. He said, why do the nations conspire? And the people plot in vain. In the old King James, it says, why do the heathens rage? (laughs) The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one, I love it when you see a capitalized word, because you know that's the name of someone. The one, who's the one? Jesus or God. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, the holy mountain. Wow. Wow. Their efforts are in vain. Let me just read that again. Their efforts are in vain. For it's futile to fight against the all-powerful God. I don't know if you found that in your own life or not. But if you're fighting against God, you're fighting against the most powerful force ever. And you're not going to win. He is. Let me take you just a step further. He's already won. You've already lost. (laughs) That's a losing battle that I don't understand why people want to even get into it, let alone stay in it. So the battle... No contest. The mere appearance of Jesus Christ will be overpowering. Here's what the Bible says in Matthew 24 and 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now I'm taking my outline right out of these verses. Here's my second point. First off, he's going to come in great power. Then we need to understand that he's going to come with great glory. The word for the Hebrew word for glory is the word kabod or kabod. And the word refers to something that is heavy in weight. We talk about glory, and I don't even know what 
images are conjured up. I'm not quite sure what we really mean. We even sing that. We, that's in a lot of songs that we sing. What do you mean by glory? Well, let me tell you what the Bible means. I'm going to give you the Hebrew background of the word kabod. The word refers to something that is heavy in meaning. Um, maybe I could explain it a little differently. We speak of something being weighty in importance. Or someone tells you something or tells you of something, you say, oh, man, that's heavy. That's heavy. You mean, what it usually means is that's, that's really important. That really, I, this is something I really need to listen to and pay attention to. Or somebody you talk about and they say, boy, he carries a lot of weight, not meaning his physical size, meaning he has a lot of importance. As a matter of fact, it's a word that is the opposite of being light and frivolous. To have glory means something that has weight and importance. It's as, it is real as opposed to something that is merely fantasy. So um, the appearance of Christ, I, I, I want to get this point across because sometimes people miss it. The appearance of Christ will be with great glory. The whole world will feel the weight of his power and the weight of his presence. I can't describe it for you. Words would fail me. Paul tries to describe it for us in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8. And he says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Look, the very weight of Christ's presence will crush the Antichrist and his armies. They will not be able to stand against him or even tolerate his presence, let alone wage war against him. Let's go back in our minds for a moment, if I, if I could entreat you and, and ask you, did everybody get that it's a writing? Did you get the definition of kabod? Did it go up there? Okay. Just wanted to be sure you saw it. Remember how when Jesus was put on trial by the religious leaders of his day and their intention was to crucify him? How many remember that story? How many have heard the story? How many know that that's a real story? How many know that's a historic event? Okay. When the religious leaders, and I want to punch that, the religious leaders of his day... They were always his worst opponents, and they feared him more than anybody else did, but for the wrong reason. They had a purpose of putting him through that kangaroo court, and that was because they eventually wanted to see him pronounced guilty and sent off for crucifixion. But you remember that little scene where the high priest, he was under so much pressure, the high priest. He was under pressure from the rest of the Sanhedrin. He was under pressure from all the Jews in Jerusalem. He was under pressure from the political world, the governor and, and the Caesar and, he, and his wife. And, and uh, it, it, I got to tell you, it, it, mm, I, wow. But he decided he was going to interject uh, a question, put a question to Jesus. So he asked Jesus if he indeed was the Son of God. And if you read it in Mark 14, at verse, starting at verse 61, here's what Jesus answered. Jesus remained silent at first and gave no answer. And again the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah? 
the son of the blessed one? In verse 62, Jesus said, I am. You see, whenever he says that, it's more than just I am. Remember when Moses uh, didn't really know where to take the children of Israel? And Abraham himself went out not knowing where he was going? And in, in all these instances, they would say, well, well what will I tell people? And who will I say sent me? And, and, and God said, tell them I am sent you. And when the high priest asked Jesus, so are you really the son of the most high God? Kind of in quotations for him. The blessed one? Are you the one that we've been looking for? Knowing that you're not, of course, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. And Jesus entered him and said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Can you imagine today, or on that day, if you were that high priest? Think of what it would be like for that man who plotted the death of Jesus to then face him at his second coming in glory and in power. Think of what it will be like for the Antichrist and his followers. Imagine what it will be like for all those who have refused or continue to refuse to give him any place in their lives because he would interfere with their own selfish purposes or desires. This isn't pretty, but they'll be crushed by the weight of his glory. Jesus described it for his followers like this in Luke 21. Start at verse 26. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. Listen, a lot of people are scared right now. A lot of people are fearful of what's coming to the world. Let me just add this. They have every right to be. If you're not on the winning side, you have every right to be real scared. And I'm not trying to scare anybody into being scared. But people will faint from terror. That's what Luke said. He must know about fainting. He was a doctor. Apprehensive of what is coming on the world for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. We had, a, we had one of those strange moons here a few weeks ago. Remember that? And people are really watching it and everything. I'm waiting for the time when all those babies are just dancing around. And you can't find the sun from the moon, from Mars, from Jupiter, from name some other one a million and a half light years away. And that's what the Bible says. This is what, this is what the scientist, Dr. Luke, says. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. There it is again. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because, believer, your redemption is drawing near. Woohoo! Wow. In chapter 5 of Revelation, verse 2, John begins to weep because nobody was, uh, was found worthy of opening the seals, and then he hears a voice saying, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And as he waits, and as he looks for that answer, down in verse 5 of Revelation 5, it says, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, 
The lion of the tribe of Judah. Who's that? Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? These are just simple things we all need to know. Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? No, no, no hesitation. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. You say, well, what does that mean? It means he's descended from the, from the line or from the family of Judah, who is one of the 12. He's one of the, Israel, the Jewish forefathers, right? And so this is exactly how it was promised, that the root of David... Root of David. He's related to David? Absolutely. And, he, and so the elder says to John, don't weep. We've got a lot of traffic going on here. We could just get a cop back there or something. See, the lion of the... Tri- it really affects me. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and open the seven seals. Um... Men are going to faint from terror. John was in tears wondering who was going to reveal all this stuff to him. And then in chapter 13, verse 4, you've got to really be working in this book of Revelation if you want to learn what it's all about. People worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshiped the beast, and they said, who is like the beast? Oh, now they're getting real brave. Who can wage war against it? Well, the answer to that question is revealed in our scripture today. Again, Revelation 19. Go to verses 11 and 12. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Do you know who Faithful and True is? Do you know who Faithful and True is? Come on, can we say it one more time? Are you afraid to say that name in public? Do you know who Faithful and True is? Jesus. See, when you read these things in Scripture, you can't just read them and say, oh, I wonder what that, I don't know. That's his name. It's his title. See, they're capitalized, faithful and true. That's Jesus. We're learning, aren't we? We're learning. We're getting there. The answer is very clear. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. The glory of his presence and the word he speaks is how he wins the war. Listen, this battle is no contest. There's a battle, but it's no contest. It's over before it started. But Christ not only comes with great power... He not only comes with great glory, I call that presence, power and presence, something more we need to learn. Christ will come again with great people. This ought to almost send you off your chair. And you're saying, well, I wonder who those, I wonder who they'll be. They'll be the believers. They'll be you and I say, well, I don't think I'm great. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. Here's what he said in Revelation 3.21. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me in my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Yeah, yeah, 
Those who are among the redeemed, those who have overcome, those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, I hope that's everyone here, will share in this glorified life. The Bible again says in Romans chapter 8, going down to verse 29, for those God foreknew, you could get mixed up here, so just try to follow me if you can. He also predestined to be conformed, all big words, to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So who's he bringing with him? Believers. Who's he bringing with us? Those he has called. Those he has predestined. Those he foreknew. What does all that mean? It means he had the plan all all mapped out before you and I ever took our first breath. The Bible says he knows the number of hairs on your head. The Bible says he knows you're coming coming in, you're going out. He, He knows every move you make, every move you've made, every thought you've had. That's scary, isn't it? And and, and he knows more about you and he knows more about me than we know about ourselves. Way more. And yet, in spite of that, he went all the way to the cross of Calvary. He wasn't murdered at all. He laid down his life for you and for me. That, he, in his, that we, in his resurrection, might also be made new and transformed and brought to life eternal. Amen. Christ shares his victory with us and he raises us up that we might join him in the final battle for the Bible says. And, I, you know, he's going to be riding on the white horse. I don't know where we're going to be or how it's going to be assembled or how many millions or billions of us there are going to be, but I know it's going to be neat to be a spectator. You know, we're armed for battle and we're ready for where and way we go and we get there and we find out the battle's already won. <laughs> He speaks the word, and the enemy just, just by the power of the word, by the sword that comes out of his mouth to slay those that have walked against him. In Revelation um, Revelation 17, 14, it says, They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them, because he's Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him, he'd be called chosen and faithful followers. Isn't it great to know that it's going to be worth it? Sometimes we sing that song, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And I don't know what some people mean. I don't even know what I mean when I sing those words. It'll be worth it all when we see Jesus. Does that mean... We're going to lay down, lie down in death, and someday we're going to rise up in resurrection, and we're going to see him. He's the first face we'll see, and it's going to be so. I think, it, I, don't, I think it means more than that. I think to know that you are counted among the faithful, that you're going to be there as a chosen and faithful follower. You know, long before you chose Jesus, he chose you. Long before you made a decision on him, He'd already made a decision on you. 
You see, this is the day that the whole created world, as well as all the kingdom of heaven, is waiting for. In anxious, just anxious moments, they're just waiting for it to happen. You say, do you think it'll happen this week? Do you think it'll happen next year? Do you think it'll happen? There's no sense guessing when it'll happen or how it'll happen. We just know it's going to happen. Here's what what Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 8. He says, uh, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Wow. That's going to be you if you have given your life over to Christ. On the day that he returns, the children of God will be revealed. There'll be no question whose side anybody's on. It'll be too late to switch sides. And all creation will be set right. Everything that's wrong will be right. Everything that's unjust will be just. Everything that's turned upside down and on its head will be right side up for for once. Maybe not for long, but for once. I got to just tell you, on the day of Christ's return to this earth, God has placed such great value on you and on you coming to know him that he's decided that for those who belong to him, he is going to share his kingdom with them, and they are going to rule and reign with him. Here's what the Bible says in 2 Timothy uh, 2, verse 11 and 12. Paul writes, here's a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. And if we disown him, he will also disown us. Now, I said a little while ago, he's going to come with great people, and you probably said, well, I guess that won't be me because I'm not very great, and I don't feel great, and I never was great, and nobody will ever consider me great, and blah, 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 blah. You know, you may see yourself as not so great. You may see yourself as really unworthy. I don't think you're worthy of him until you see yourself as unworthy, but... Here's how God sees you, according to the scripture in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Wow. You know, you might want to underscore that in your Bible. You might want to mark this verse. You might want to put this on your mirror. You might want to carry this wherever you go. You know what I am? I'm God's special possession. Devil, hands off. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous and wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And in Revelation 20, getting on towards the end of the book, in verse 6, Again, the writer says, Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's the millennial reign. We call it the millennium. Again, it's not a Bible word, but it's one we've kind of affixed to that period of time. 
And not only are we going to come with him and see him in his glory and sense his presence and see his power and experience his greatness and beyond all. And by the way, we're going to be in glorified bodies and we're going to know differently than we know now. And we're going to see differently than we know now. And we're going to act and react differently than we act and react now. But, you know, we're not only going to reign with him. We're not only going to rule with him. We're not only going to share his kingdom. But we're going to recognize what mercy and grace, salvation, love, eternity are all about. Because we're going to be with him. This is just the first stage for a thousand years. Reigning for a thousand years. One of the leaders of the early church was a man by the name of Polycarp. He became the bishop of Smyrna. He was an outspoken Christian, but he was put on trial by the political authorities of the day and told to deny the Christian faith. That somehow sounds familiar. It's happening in many places in the world. He looked at his accusers, and here's what he said, and I quote, For 46 years have I served him, and never once has he done me wrong. How then can I revile my king? my Savior. Because of his refusal to deny the Savior, they immediately took Polycarp, took him out of the city, and put him to death. Sometime later, Christian historians wrote about his death and wrote about his life. And here's what they observed. Polycarp was was martyred. Statius Quadratus, being the proconsul of Asia, and Jesus Christ being king forever. End of quote. That's a history. They recognized that even though this humble follower of Christ had been rejected by the world, he was highly esteemed by his God. And nothing could change that. Why? Since Jesus Christ is king forever. This is how it will be for all those who follow Christ. They'll share in his power. They'll share in his glory. And they'll share in his eternal reign. Now, I've said it before, and I'm going to just repeat it, and maybe you'll get a little bit of a taste for it. But to fully understand all the meaning and implications of the book of Revelation, you have to have at least a basic understanding of the book of Daniel. So if you really want to know about Revelation, some of you have been telling me you're going to read Revelations again. Um, If you want to know about the book of Revelation, first I suggest you read the book of Daniel. You really want to get confused. The prophet Daniel, who's the key to the understanding, did understand, he understood all of this and he saw it 650 years before John ever wrote it. And here's what Daniel said in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He, appro- he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. That's God. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this same Jesus will return. He will return with great power. 
He will return with great presence, that's his glory, and he'll return with great people. That's those of us who know him and love him and have committed ourselves to him. Here's how the Apostle John summed that up. In 1 John chapter 2, in verse 28, he says, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. John is prodding us here. Don't just start in the Christian life or say you're going to start. Continue. Keep growing. Keep learning. Keep living like him. Keep living for him. Keep your testimony vibrant and alive and real and sincere and genuine. Why? Because when he returns, you want to stand with confidence and you want to be unashamed at his coming. That's a wonderful, wonderful reminder. Here's what I want to ask you this morning before I close. Are you continuing in him? You say, well, I started, but I haven't gone far and I haven't learned much and I, I just feel like I don't know anything and I just, not, blah, blah, blah. Are you continuing in him? Do you have a plan? Do you have a way? Or did you reach a plateau and it was a fairly comfortable plateau, so you've just decided... Looks like good ground here. I'll just pitch my tent. I'll camp here. I'll count myself as a Christian. I'll tell people I am, if I'm forced to. And um, you know what? I'm comfortable with that. Well, that's not what John said in 1 John. He said, continue in Christ. Grow in Christ. Develop in Christ. Be more like Christ. Want more than anything else to emulate Christ. Be his spokesperson. Be proud of the fact that you belong to him, not ashamed of it. Because on the day he returns, you want to stand with confidence and not be ashamed. So are you continuing? Maybe you have never started. Pretty hard to continue if you've never started. Sometimes preachers take a lot for granted. Have you started? Are you there? Do you really, really understand the price that's been paid for your soul? Do you have confidence? The Bible asks this. I think it's the most, I think it's the most piercing question and the most penetrating question or statement in all the Bible. Over in Hebrews, the writer asks this question in chapter 2. He said, how shall we escape if we ignore, or the old version says, neglect so great a salvation. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And the question for us today is, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? What I've been talking about this morning is the end game. That final battle, which is no contest. I want to ask you, are you ready for that? Will you be with Christ on that day? Will you stand proudly with him? Will all the world know whose side you're on? You're on the winning side. 
And it's not because of you, and it's not because of me, and it's not because of the church, and it's not because we were good little boys and girls. It's not because we went to church regularly. It's not because we put some money in. It's got nothing to do with any of that. But we have personally accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we've made a point of continuing in him, growing in him, learning of him, loving him, Loving him more and more and more until that day. We want to help you connect if you've never connected with him. And for that very reason, we have a little card in the, in the seat pocket near you. It's called the Connect Card. And if you've never made that important decision to follow Christ, you're easily, it's an easy thing to do as you read that card to just make some decisions. But we want you to do more than fill out a card. We want you to fill that card. We want, us to, want you to give us some information. We want you to leave that with us. Leave it on one of the empty chairs on the front or give it to one of us here. But we want to know more about where you are. We want to know more about how you got there. We want to know more about where you're headed. We want to know how you plan to get there. And that's why we want to connect with you. My prayer, my hope is that you want to connect with him. Can we just be quiet for a moment and pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so humbled this morning as we stop and think about how much you love us, how much you care for us, how much mercy you've extended to us in bringing Christ to be our Savior and bringing us to faith in that finished work of Calvary. And Lord, today we need you more than we've ever needed you. And Lord, today we ask that those that have started the journey will continue the journey and will work towards growing and, and becoming more like you so that in that final day, in that final moment, in the day when all is revealed and the whole world can see and see us for who we really are, that there'll be no doubt in anybody's mind, but that we follow you, we live for you, we identify with you, and we're on that winning side. For those who've never connected with Jesus, we pray that this might be the start of something great, taking that first step, moving forward. Maybe they've taken a first step, but they're still not there, and they're moving towards faith in Christ. And we pray that they will make that commitment today. Father, thank you for your word. It's so powerful so meaningful. Help us not just take what we've heard today or learned and, and just kind of put it on the shelf with another one and say, oh, didn't get all that, don't understand all that, haven't read all that, but it sounded okay. Rather, Lord, help us to dig deep. Help us to drill down. Help us to be willing to be open vessels. Work through us by your Holy Spirit, bringing us closer every day to you. And we give you thanks for we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Hey, let's stand together and let the cry of our hearts continually be, Lord, I need you.